If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 24 with me. 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you do not have a Bible, hopefully there should be a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, close by, and we refer to those as our pew Bibles. You can find this passage on page 231, 231 in the pew Bible. While you're finding that passage, as we continue to look through, work through our sermon series in 1 Samuel, um, the elders of Grace Covenant Church, we want to just extend a thank you to the body of Christ that has served so well over the last week. The list is exhaustive, and I'm sure I will not even begin to scratch the surface, but all that went into preparing for the funeral of Isabel, um, before, in the midst of it, afterwards, the reception, uh, the meals that have been prepared and provided, families needing to be moved and our body coming together and moving them over the weekend, um, the carpeting of the sanctuary and all of the chairs needed to be moved out and back in, and that does remind me of just a little bit of uh, housekeeping. So it was just a few months ago that we were blessed with new carpet in here, and we, um, we have a chance, kind of a redo. We, um, if, you, if you looked at the carpet, there were quite a few stains uh, due to coffee. We love coffee around here, and we, we don't want to, um, to make a hard, fast rule that no coffee can enter in through the doors because it's so precious to this body. Um, but we want to just maybe encourage everyone to uh, be mindful and careful that we don't create so many stains so quickly. <laughs> We're very thankful to have um, the, the coffee, yes, amen, um, this new carpet, and um, thankful for all the hands that made all that possible over the last week. So, um, with that, I hope you can hear from our hearts. Uh, we, are, we are so thankful for the body here at Grace Covenant Church, even if you spill coffee everywhere. <laughs> now let's look to God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. 
So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David lifted up his voice, I'm sorry, and Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more, are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you surely, you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Hear the voice and the word of the Lord. Now, beginning with a question, why is God bringing in his kingdom in this way that we read in 1 Samuel 24? And as we have seen the story of David being anointed by the prophet Samuel, why is God bringing about his kingdom in this way? We may wonder why God would arrange the Philistines at the end of the last chapter, chapter 23, to attack at just the right moment to force Saul to abandon his hunt for David at the rock of escape. Could he not simply, if he can do that, simply arrange for David to painlessly take over the kingdom immediately? Why all of this that needs to transpire? Why is the journey to that kingdom so long and so difficult? Why are there so many tears on the way? I want that to kind of just be stewing why 
Why does David have to go through all of this when God Almighty could immediately change all the landscape and put him right on the throne? We have witnessed through many accounts and even the reflections of David inspired by God in the Psalms that God is working on his people through all of the different difficult circumstances. Now, this will age me a bit, but there was a time, little children, when watching TV, you could not fast forward through commercials or rewind and replay a funny part that you may have missed or you wanted to show your siblings or your mom and dad. Those options at one point did not exist for us older folk. Skipping the boring parts and just getting to the good stuff was not an option. Now, imagine you could fast forward through difficult parts of your life. If you are experiencing something you do not like, then you could hit the fast forward button and skip that bit of your life. A good question to think about, what what part of your life would you skip? In that cave, David had the opportunity to fast forward, so to speak, or skip the life of suffering and fast forward to the throne. He, he had before him the opportunity for this kind of fast track to the throne. But that was not God's way. It was not God's plan. Tim Chester, he wrote a little commentary on, on 1 Samuel, asked some good questions that I want us to think about. When do you wish you could hit the fast forward button? Could it be that God is allowing you to suffer so that he can teach you an important lesson or reshape your life in a certain way? Are there ways in which you are trying to hit the fast-forward button even now? Ways in which you are tempted to compromise so that you can avoid difficult situations? Perhaps you keep quiet about Jesus to avoid the scorn of others. Perhaps you are not challenging the behavior of beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, your friends, because you fear their response. Perhaps you are tempted to compromise in the workplace so that you may make progress in your career or seal a certain deal. As we saw in the last chapter and in previous chapters with David, you can't just skip over the difficult parts of this life, the suffering. And that way, really would be circumventing the way to God being glorified and you being transformed. It is not God's way for us, according to his plan, to just be able to fast forward or alleviate or remove ourselves from situations that he has before us. An important insight into these questions really do happen in this chapter before us, which we will look at this morning It's a day when David could have, could have easily made his path to the throne quick and easy. And so first, looking at the first seven verses before us really is the the scene inside this cave where we're told uh, to kind of set the scene. At this point in David's running and fleeing, there are now around 600 men with him who have joined, who have gone, those who, who 
were kind of the outcast in need of, of help going out to David. And at this point, we hear of Saul now coming after him, picking 3,000 of uh, the hand-picked men of Israel. We're told by the setting of the scene that David and his men have already been hiding in a cave. And it's just amazing the detail here. It just so happens in this area where there are many caves, if you just kind of Google in Gedi or in Gedi, you will see pictures of amazing streams coming out of caverns, beautiful part of God's promised land for his people. And in one of these caves, David is hidden in the uttermost back part, and it just happens to be the cave where King Saul needs to go into to relieve himself. Now, this scene is being set where it looks like Saul has been given into the hands of David. This is his moment, and all the men with him, the whispering starts, the man who has been after you is now right before you. All indications to the men, this is the time, go get him. This is your chance. And we hear that from the men as it's being described to David. In verse 4, they said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. This is a crossroads in life. This is that type of situation where what you do will actually have a huge impact on the rest of your life. This is what's happening with David right here. This life situation. And he hears the men. And instead of going with his sharp blade and slaying Saul... With that sharp blade, he creeps up and cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, what we're told in the aftermath of this, this little episode that happens seemingly so briefly is that David is heartstruck. And the way that we interpret that is, according to his conscience, he is strongly convicted that what he just did was not right. Now, for the men, they're thinking, all you got was a piece of his robe? But David, having that sensitive conscience unto the Lord, realizes that even this was a step too far. Now, it's going to be used later in his speech before Saul, but right now, we're, we want to just stop for the, the moment and think about how this is weighing on him. Even his symbolic action has gone too far. And a question that is a good question, why, why is David conscience stricken after cutting Saul's robe? And so just kind of looking a little bit further back in 1 Samuel or a little bit earlier in Samuel, we, I think we can, we can find the answer. The answer can be found where we have met robes in our story thus far. When God rejects Saul in chapter 15, if you remember, Saul grabs onto Samuel's robe and it tears. And when it te tears, Samuel tells him that his kingdom, too, will be torn. It will be torn away from him and given to one of his neighbors, to one 
better than you. 1 Samuel 15, 28. Then, in chapter 18, Jonathan gives his robe. The prince of the king gives his robe to David as a sign that he is recognizing that God has anointed David to be king. In chapter 20, Jonathan pleads with David in verse 15. Do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Now, in our story, David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. Symbolically cutting off his kingdom or taking his kingdom or laying claim to Saul's kingdom. This, this was too much for David. This step was too far. David, that neighbor that it was promised that the kingdom would be given to, in a sense took it upon himself to slice Saul's royal robe. And so he is heartstruck by this. It was to be the Lord that would cut off his enemies very clearly. So this step, even for David, was a step too far. Now, the word usage is really powerful here because when you look at verses 6 and 7 and how David responds to his men, he said to his men, The Lord forbid me that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. And put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. And then verse 7, So David persuaded his men with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. Now, the ESV translates that kind of lightly. In verse 7, it's that same word usage of, of tearing, or tearing something apart. Uh, it, so it's a little mild. He tore into, he rebuked, he tore apart from his men, any thought of them needing to go and actually slay Saul. He was very, in a sense, aggressive towards his men in acknowledging that it is the Lord's anointed, and even what he did was, was too much. David was devastated that he had done such a thing. And when we hear about David being a man after God's own heart, David's repentant response, even in this action, testifies to him being that man after God's own heart. David understands that the kingdom, which would certainly be his one day because God had promised, anointed him as the king, was not for him to take by his own power. The kingdom had been given to Saul by God, and it was up to God to take it from him in his own time, and in his own way. The kingdom could only properly come as God's gift. David is, is helping us here recognize that it is God who must do what he has said he would do. There is a trusting and a reliance on the Lord and not taking matters into our own hands. David stayed his hand not because Saul deserved to live, but because he was not Saul's appointed judge. The Lord, very clearly, did not commission him to execute Saul. Even, and this is what I want us to just think about and hear this morning, even when it seemed like 
the door was being opened to that result or to that end. And this is important when we think about, as we talk about the Lord's providence, even in our own lives, God opening up doors, God closing doors. I think this story is helpful application for us to be very careful in discerning what we believe the Lord's will is in certain situations based off of what seems to be doors opening and doors closing. He would have agreed with the men that it was God who had placed Saul in their hands that day. Yet the mere fact that God had provided an opportunity does not guarantee that he intended David to exercise the slaying of Saul in that moment. Often, as is in the case here in our story, God tests his servants to reveal the true state of their hearts. Now, if you think about God's word, there are other stories that testify to this truth. So, for example, Jonah. When he is called by God to go to Nineveh and call them to repentance, when Jonah arrived in Joppa to find a ship bound for Tarshish already in port, God was not facilitating this ship there for Jonah to get on and, and flee the other direction. Although it arriving at the port could have looked like, from Jonah's perspective, man, it just so happens that this ship is here now. It must be an open door that I can get on it and go to Tarshish. Well, no, God's word was very clear on what Jonah was supposed to do. This is what I want us to hear this morning. God never told David to take matters into his own hands and slay Saul. That never came from the word of God. In the cave, the temptation was great to look around and think, this must be God's will. In the Lord's providence, Saul is in this cave at the very moment that we are. This must be it. Brothers and sisters, we must be very careful in discerning open doors and God's will. If it is not aligning with God's word, it is not God's will. So you think about this in your workplace with relationships so many different areas in our life where we think because something opens up and looks right that it must be God's will. And again, testifying to the need for the body of Christ to be walking with each other where if one of our brothers or sisters is led astray into thinking that this is the Lord's kind providence and I must do this and it is contrary to his word that we would love each other enough to hold God's word up in each other's faces and remind each other what is truth and what really is God's will for our life. And according to the Apostle Paul, that is our sanctification. This is God's will for you, that you would be sanctified, conformed into the image of his son. If what you think is right and it is not leading to that end, be very careful that you're not running headlong thinking, oh, this must be God's will for my life. It's opening up before me perfectly. This is good for us to see in our story this morning. Consider what a severe test this was for David. A.W. Pink comments, 
one stroke of his sword, and his steps go right into the throne. Farewell to poverty. Farewell to the life of, hunting, of a hunted goat. Reproaches, sneers, defeat would cease. Adulations, triumphs, riches would be his. But his at the sacrifice of faith at the sacrifice of a humbled will, ever waiting on God's time, at the sacrifice of a thousand precious experiences of God's care, God's provision, God's guidance, God's tenderness. No, even a throne at that price is too dear. Faith will wait. I could never have said that as eloquently and perfectly as A.W. Pink did there. All that we have heard in David's life, the difficulties, but what God is up to in the midst of it, all of that would be removed in his communion with God and his dependence upon God. It seems like that would be the right way to get to the throne as fast as possible, but it wasn't God's way. And David, even, even though he went too far in his conscience, his heart being struck that he even cut the robe, he did not use that knife to slay Saul that day or that sword. And so there was, in a sense, even in his repentant state of wishing he wouldn't have taken even that step of him recognizing that God is in control and God will lead the way. So the opportunity to harm Saul passed and Saul rose up and left the cave and went his way. And so in verses 8 through 15, we see David's speech. My Lord, the king, imagine this scene. Saul is walking back out to his thousands of soldiers. He thinks that he has been wholly protected, safe and secure, and he's walking back out after doing what he needed to do in the cave, and David's voice is ringing behind him. And he turns to see that he was not alone in that cave. David, bowing and paying homage, one of the most important speeches in his life up to this point begins with my Lord, the King. God's power enabled David, even in this moment, to function as a peacemaker in the face of the most wicked hostility. This man has been hunted by Saul again and again. And I, I want us to think about the way in which David approaches Saul, both in his posture and his words, through this whole speech, how many disputes that have escalated to severe or to severing friendships and even family bonds might have been dissolved by the generous spirit that we see in David, the spirit really in what he's saying to Saul of reconciliation. That even after hearing his words, Saul responded favorably to David's peaceful entreaty it really does prove what we hear in the Proverbs. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath. You watch 
David's words go forth and how Saul responds. And most of our children have memorized that passage. In the heat of the moment, the timing, our posture, and the words all matter. A soft answer turns away wrath. Now, did it transform Saul's heart? No. But the way that he responds to David was actually impacted by the way David approaches and the words that he speaks. Now, what I want you to hear about that proverb, many, I think, kind of default into thinking, well, then that, that must mean that when you speak to someone, you're not saying a whole lot and you're saying it really soft. David, through this speech, is speaking the truth. I mean, he is not holding back, but he's doing it in such a way that actually does turn away the wrath of the one hearing it. Now, the grounds for, for David's um, speaking unto Saul, all the words that he expresses, really were all, all grounded on his confidence and reliance upon the Lord. Not the circumstance, not what other people had told him to do. Remember, he was encouraged by the men, this is your time. He's letting Saul know that everything that just transpired in the cave, holding even the part of his robe and letting him know that he spared him, really had nothing to do with the way that Saul had been treating him. It was solely grounded on his relationship and reliance upon the Lord. Everything that transpired, Saul, in that cave is due to God's influence on me. My trust in him dictated all that transpired. That was the thrust of all that David was saying. And whatever happens after I get done talking to you now, God will take care of it. How, how could the king respond in wrath towards David when hearing that he is anchored upon God in all spheres of his life? However this goes down, I'm still going to honor you because God has placed you where you're at, and he will take care of me. He will make all things that have been wrong right. What an amazing way for us to approach those kind of difficult conversations interactions that we need to have with people, that there may be turmoil, there may be um, much fighting that has happened in the past, to enter in and rest firmly on who God is and what he has said, letting that lead the conversation. David then speaks of a proverb of the ancients by saying, out of the wicked comes wickedness. By my hand shall not be against you. The obvious implication there, if you're just hearing that proverb read, is that that, that proverb is describing Saul, who has acted wickedly because he is wicked. But David applies that proverb to himself positively. If, if David was wicked, as Saul seems to believe, this man is after me, he would have done the wicked thing. David's helping Saul understand, I, 
that's not who I am. That, that actually is describing you, but it's not describing me. You would have done the wicked thing. But I will not lift my hand against the Lord's king. David describes himself in this speech as a dead dog or a flea. It is not that David was pretending that he was completely unimportant in the land of Israel, that God somehow wasn't setting him aside to be the anointed king, but really emphasizing that he was no more a threat to Saul than a dead dog or a single flea on a dead dog. Shifting again to, this is, this is in the hands of the Lord. I am not out to get you. The point that David is making is that he represents no threat to Saul. If he had been, Saul would not have made it out of the cave. Verse 15, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. In this, in a sense, David is, is posturing himself in an imprecatory way. So we, we have imprecatory psalms, uh, for example, Psalm 5, 6, 35, 69, 109. And an imprecatory psalm is an invocation of divine cursing. But the, the, the thrust and the emphasis in all of this is that it's not in our hands that we seek vengeance. But we're crying out to God who is the one who will make all things that are wrong right. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And David is, is letting Saul know very clearly my trust is in the one who is able to make all things that you have done to me that are so wrong and evil, he will make them right. And so in a sense, before Paul even wrote Romans chapter 12, verse 19 that we looked at last week, behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. David is living that out before Saul even now. Verses 16 through the end of the chapter, we see the words have been spoken. All that has been conveyed from David appears to have landed in a very heavy way with Saul. Appears to have hit Saul hard, so to speak. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Just by way of reminder, the way that King Saul has been addressing David previously has only been that son of Jesse. There would be no relational tie acknowledged between Saul and David when he is seeking his life. And yet here, what David has said has, has really hit or struck home with Saul, where he responds, Is this your voice, my son David? And then lifting up his voice, he wept. For a moment, he seems to be overcome with emotions. Verse 17, he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day, 
how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And then there is an acknowledgement here from Saul. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Richard Phillips in his commentary is really helpful here. As you're looking at Saul and how he's responding to this, Saul made a stunning revelation that publicly or uh, publicly announced, sorry, the futility of his ungodly life. When he said, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. In similar fashion, unbelievers today frequently complain about the, the vanity of pursuing fame or fortune despite their inability to stop pursuing these very things. So Saul, Saul recognizes that what he's doing is futile. Yet, just like unbelievers today, even though there may be a recognition that that's futile, they can't help but continue doing that very thing or pursuing that very thing. Knowing that he was wrong did not keep Saul from pursuing David's life. Just as unbelievers who admit the purpose, purposelessness of their existence, they're really not able to change their lives without the gracious intervention of God through the gospel. Now, there is a description that the Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians of godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And we've, we've mentioned this before, but on the face of it, they can look very similar. When presented with evidence of your guilt, like Saul was presented with here, there is emotion. And you have to think for a moment what he is realizing this very day. Everything that he has is going to be removed from him. Now, I, I want us to not confuse this. Godly sorrow is a recognition that you have sinned against God and God alone. And that there is true sorrow and repentance for grieving a holy and righteous God. Worldly sorrow may look very similar, but you're really grieving what you are about to lose. The, the consequences of your sins. And right here we have Saul, maybe for the first time, recognizing before him in a very real way that basically he's, he's busted and what he hoped to continue to have in his kingdom is, is leaving. Even though his life was spared, it's kind of like all the cards were laid bare at this point and he realizes the reality of the situation maybe to a more heightened way than he ever had before. His pursuing and wanting to kill the Lord's anointed, the, the slaying of the prophets of Nob, do you remember all the, the evil that he has done? There is a grieving and a sorrow, but, but really what's laid bare is a, a, worldly, a worldly sorrow. 
So even though that he could admit that that road is not going to actually lead to, to life and flourishing, what we find out is that he continues to pursue David. There, there's relief here. He goes back after these words were spoken by David. But his heart hasn't been changed. He even asks, swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. Give me mercy. But what we don't hear here is mercy extended to David besides them just parting ways. David swears that he won't. He will, he will do what Saul asked him. But there's not that reciprocation where Saul actually swears to David that I will continue to have mercy upon you. It's a very one-sided, what, what can you do for me to help it not be as bad? By sparing Saul's life, David convinced the king temporar temporarily to stop fighting against him. But more importantly, his actions revealed the work of the Lord in his life. Really, this is true. Only one who has been transformed by God's grace could stay his hand in a situation like David was presented with in the cave that day. As we think about where we started, kind of this, this option, if it were an option, to fast forward through parts of your life to alleviate maybe some pain and sorrow or suffering just to kind of get to the next enjoyable part of this life. How vital it was for our salvation that the true anointed one, the son of David, that Jesus did not reach out to seize his throne in a manner contrary to God's plan. This is where I want to end this morning. The devil, in Matthew chapter 4, sought this type of temptation for David. Thought that this may be the best chance to turn the Messiah from his course to the cross in Jerusalem. Satan laid before Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory will be yours. As he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, why would this temptation really be a temptation to Jesus? Why should Jesus take his kingdom at the feet of Satan? Well, really what Satan was offering Jesus was an offer of the crown without the cross. Just like David in the, in the, in the, the cave that day, had to have been tempted that if I take this man's life, it is going to be a fast track, alleviate the suffering and the heartache, right to the throne. Praise be to God that our Lord and Savior endured that temptation. What difference did it make for Jesus to get to his kingdom the way that God ordained versus the way that Satan offered him that very day? The difference, you look around this morning, is us. Those who were at enmity with God, who deserved the wrath of God because of our sin, had Jesus fallen into that temptation, bowing to Satan so that he could immediately have the kingdoms of this world, it would bypass his mission 
to seek and save the lost, the lost, to lay down his life as a substitute for rebels like us so that we who were far off could be brought near by the blood of the Lamb. We praise God that the first Lord's anointed in the cave did not take matters into his own hand to get to the throne, and we glory in the cross of Jesus Christ that he did not fall into the temptation of Satan, but knew that the cross lay before him and gladly endured it for our sake. David's godly patience and restraint in the cave should remind us of the Lord Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 22 through 23, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This was the mark of our Lord's life. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What a great example as well that the Lord gives us that we might follow in his steps. So we see in the example of David, really just but a shadow pointing to the example of the Lord Jesus. And in closing, I just want us to to think about our own lives and where the reality of that fast-forward button isn't there, actually spend time rejoicing, counting it all joy, my brothers and sisters, the various trials that you endure, knowing, knowing that in all of that, God is using them, working all things together for good for those who, are, who love him and who are called according to his purposes. That, that paradigm shift changes everything in this life. Most of us want the easy way. If it's less painful, that's what we want. But if you could see, get but a glimpse of God's marvelous plan of sanctifying his people, there would be much encouragement knowing that he is at work, that nothing that happens to us is meaning, meaningless that it is all for a reason, for his glory and our good. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Hearing from Hebrews chapter 4, or chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we thank you that you have fed us with the bread of life, your word this morning. We pray, Father, that you would bless it. Make it health and strength to us. 
as we strive to live lives that are pleasing to you until our obedience reaches the measure of your love, you who have done everything for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Grant this, our God, for your Son's sake, our only Savior, with you and the Holy Spirit, three persons but one most glorious, incomprehensible God, be all glory and honor and praise forever. In Christ's name we pray, amen.